Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at theshepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited this morning to talk to Michael Foster, a man that I've been learning from recently, and so it's going to be a lot of fun talking to him. Michael, how are you doing this morning, man? I'm doing good. I'm, uh, I'm actually doing something effeminate right now. I am drinking pumpkin spice flavored coffee. Oh, dude. Come on now. We'll, well, I guess we'll for, pray about forgiving you. I wanted to see how powerful my masculinity was. Could it overcome? So far, <laughs> I don't uh, know. Is it? Okay. I don't know if it is or not, but let's go ahead and pray, pray over that. And then we'll have a good conversation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for coffee, even pumpkin spice coffee. Uh, thank you for the internet that we can just talk, I mean, being a couple states away and have a conversation about you, about pastoral ministry, about life as a Christian man, and pray that you'd lead this discussion. I thank you for Michael and his willingness to do this. And I just ask that you would point us to Jesus that you'd give us clarity. And, and this would be just a lot of fun. And uh, Jesus, it's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Michael, for those who don't know you or maybe not that familiar with you, why don't you go and tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and then what it is that you're doing? Sure. Um, well, I, uh, I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm from, I'm mostly from this area. I grew up all over the country, but we eventually settled down in Southern Indiana. So uh, that's where I spent a good portion of my youth, Lawrenceburg, Indiana. I grew up across the uh, street from the Seagram's whiskey plant. I used to steal whiskey from there when I was a boy. And uh, grew up in a pretty standard American family, meaning that it was just nothing. You know, just a weird mixture of occultism and Christianity and, you know, evolutionary thinking, all that stuff. And um, I was uh, never into Christianity. My introduction to Christianity, well, I went to a Lutheran church a couple times with my grandmother when I was young. And then, uh, but most of it came through like TBN and watching guys like Jimmy Baker, whatever. I thought Christians were idiots. I was like, how does anyone not see through this? I can remember being like, like eight, year, eight years old and thinking that. But um, so then, uh, then my family be, uh, started becoming uh, church attenders and they got real pushy with me. By this time I was in my teens and, uh, and I kind of pushed back and I, I was an agnostic, but I became a much more aggressive atheist back then. You know, in the mid '90s, uh, the internet wasn't what it is today, so I had to go read books. So I read a lot of Carl Sagan and all that sort of stuff, um, Arthur C. Clarke. But um, and so I got really anti uh, Christianity because it looked like uh, something for weak fools. Because some of that that version of what's called Christianity really is. And then one day I went to a, I got tricked into going to a a uh, basketball tournament that was actually like an evangelism event, you know, ah, made okay. a switch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now it was, it was wild. It was like a wild charismatic sort of weirdness, but in the middle of it, uh, a fellow stood up and preached the gospel. It was a very simple um, gospel message and, uh, and God regenerated me. I was born again. Wow. Was it, was it? Well, so on Friday I was an atheist on Saturday. I was a Christian and on Monday, I went to the card catalog in my high school there, LHS, and uh, looked up C and found two books in Christianity, The Cross and the Switchblade by David Wilkerson nice. and um, Augustine's Confessions. Okay. And so those are the first two books I read. So right away, I was always kind of um, influenced by street evangelism and that sort of stuff, but also deeply by the church fathers. So mm -hmm. uh, kind of the schizophrenia <laughs> in some ways of my Christian experience. But so then, um, yeah, that's, that's how I became a believer. I th I, that's probably another one of your questions, but, uh, that also, uh, is where I started doing Bible studies and I met my wife at one and we got married and then, uh, was a junior high youth pastor and then a youth pastor and then a church planner with Acts 29. And so I've been in the ministry of one form or another since I've been about uh, 18 years old, actually okay. 40 gotcha. now, so 22 years. And, my wife and I, we've had eight kids. We have one in heaven and seven with us, uh, mm -hmm. which is uh, four boys, three girls. And right now we reside in Cincinnati. Uh, we have just started a church plant just two weeks ago, matter of fact. So we're in the core group phase or whatever, getting to know you phase. And yeah. 
Uh, and so we were planning a church in Batavia, Ohio, which is a little town about 30 minutes from downtown Cincinnati, 35 minutes. And um, yeah, Man, so there's a little bit about stuff. Me. So you were a junior or senior when you were converted in somewhere late high school? Junior year. Yeah, junior year. Junior year. Okay. That's right. Okay. And then you met your wife at a youth event at one of those evangelism events? So here's what, here's what really happened. Um, what happened is, uh, so I, I get saved and I've, I've, by the time I got into high school, I was a really meek person in middle school, but high school, I kind of went through, I just got tall and started hitting the weights and running with the rougher crew and became uh, opinionated and everything. Then I got saved. And so mm-hmm. once I got saved, then it was like, I was going table to table during lunch period. Nice. I'm like, Hey, what do you guys, what do you guys think about Jesus? Where you at? And preaching the gospel. And, and my friends, my close friends, they didn't like straight up, reject me but they did avoid me sometimes and okay. I, I i'd walk down to walnut theater um on walnut street in lawrenceburg to go watch some movie and uh they were supposed to meet me there and they weren't there and so i remember walking up 50 highways just praying to god like i don't i don't get it you know i thought following you would be a blessing uh i, I can't do this by myself whatever now walk up to the local drugstore and there's some skateboarders there mm-hmm. and they walk up to me and say uh do you know jesus now i had one of those goofy shirts on you know no jesus no jesus like the, <laughs> yeah. the whole sort of yeah glam words um <clears throat> and i thought they were mocking me because back then skaters weren't the prissy preppy you know uh types that we have nowadays back mm-hmm. then skaters right. were kind of a rougher crowd especially um the ones that i would run into there but uh they were legit christians and that the, so the night my friends ditched me i met some christian guys that one of them is still one of my best friends today we talk a couple times a week and cool. he's in ministry now but uh so we started going around uh, into these little community bible studies and like 30 40 all the way up to over 100 people would show up to these bible studies unaffiliated you know some pastors kind of roughly like taking us under the wing here and there but it was mm-hmm. pretty informal but uh one of the bible studies that i i ended up teaching was a block from my wife's house okay and she came down there because there was good food and good looking guys supposedly and uh and so it was crazy that's where i met her and um uh, and so that that whole community Bible study evangelism time, like I didn't know how bad Christianity could be hmm. because when I got saved, I knew nothing. I'd never read uh, the Bible seriously. I think I looked at Revelation. Um, mm-hmm. Back then it was still Revelations to me. Right, you know? um, the plural. But uh, yeah, that's right. But then um, – uh, then we, we got saved in that. I was introduced to the church fathers, but we also were going out preaching the gospel wherever, like, I mean, anywhere, like the produce section. It was really right. awkward looking back on it. And then we had these Bible studies three or four times a week where uh, all of us teenagers were getting together around God's word and seriously just going line by line and trying to explain it to the best of our ability. And uh, God blessed that those, those Bible studies, um, Really, uh, a lot of the folks that met there are still friends today. The guy cool. that is leading uh, the worship leader at uh, the church plant we're doing right now, he, um, he first started playing the guitar when he was like 13 to mm-hmm. lead worship in one of those Bible studies. So Man, I know that him. Is cool. And so That's just God cool. did this really, you know, cool thing. I'm all for doing things officially through the church, but the Holy Spirit sometimes just does does things this way you know yeah. and i was very thankful to be part of that and to watch large numbers of folks get saved like i, I look back on it now and i realize i was part of some sort of localized localized revival and yeah. uh it was just really neat so that's, that's cool. a big part of my past very cool blessed man a bunch of children one with the lord and wife kids church plant a lot of lot of neat things when i was uh when i was early in the faith i did a lot of evangelism as well I mean, you still do a lot of evangelism, but we had these tracks. We would go down to New Orleans to Mardi Gras during Mardi Gras, and we would have these tracks out, and it was uh, the big question track. If you're to die today, do you have the assurance that you would be in heaven? And it was a conversation started for sure, and it was a lot of fun. So I know what it's like to go just, I mean, track bomb people to evangelize wherever you're at. And man, there's a lot, a lot of really great things from that. But, but this call into ministry then, it sounds like you got into ministry pretty quick. I know a lot of young guys, for me, there was a really clear call, call where, where God just dropped a burden in me to preach the Bible and teach wherever I could. And so I just started teaching the Bible and, 
had some people come around me pretty quickly and just affirm that that calling in a ministry. But for a lot of guys, it's a slower process or it's not as distinct. And yet it is a real internal call with external affirmations. And so what, what was that like? It seems like you got thrown in pretty quick. So what was that internal external process in a ministry then for you? It seems like you're kind of thrown in the deep end pretty quick. Um, I don't know how much of an internal call there was in the way that some people describe it. I won't lie that at, at times I'm a little suspicious of that. What I'll say is that um, there was a desire to be a blessing and help to those that were learning. Like um, I uh, didn't, I didn't uh, immediately want to be a pastor. That's for certain. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I actually struggled with the idea of ministry all the way into my early twenties um, it seemed like wherever I went, the Lord was promoting me. We did these, we started a skateboard ministry uh, where we, we built a couple ramps and people would come and they would skate on the ramps. We got mm -hmm. like 10 people We're like, oh, awesome. But we built some more ramps and then we built so many ramps that we'd have to stick them into the back of a 24 foot rider truck. And then we started traveling across the country from church to church oh. and we would, we would set up the ramps in their parking lot. Cause back then this is right before Tony Hawk pro skater came out in the PS uh, one or PS two, whatever it was. And there weren't a lot of skate parks across America. Now there are, they're real mm -hmm. common, but that, so to have these awesome hat pipes and all these uh, rails and everything was a really big deal. And uh, we'd have like 200, 300, 500 kids come wow. out to these on occasion. And then, you, you know, I'd get up there and uh, just preach from Romans and we'd see 30 or 40 people come to faith or at least profess. And then we would plug them in to whichever church we we're at. So mm -hmm. we did a lot of stuff up in New York and Ohio and all over the place. Okay. And, um, and so then it was like always having these opportunities, always being in a leadership position and uh, but not really enjoying the responsibility like I knew what the ministry would involve mm -hmm. and I struggled with it and I remember telling Emily when she, we decided we wanted to date or if you want to pretend uh, you can say court but uh, um, when we uh, walked I walked her home and I was like look I, I, I'm, I know I'm going to go in the ministry and it's going to mean that I'm going to be away a lot I'm going to probably be poor and I'm going to probably be hated by a lot of people and if that's not something you can imagine being in your future, this relationship, we should just be friends and not go any further from here. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely had that sense, but I also struggled with it because, you know, I don't know what people think the pastoral ministry is. You hear these young guys talk and these are like bookish nerds that think they get to stand up in front of people and talk all the time. Right. And in the ministry is very difficult. Your family's underneath a magnifying glass and you're dealing with the sins of people and, and it's easy for your study time to slip away. You hear these guys like talk about how they do 20, 30 hours of sermon prep. Now I don't know what you say, so I have no clue, but if you do that and you're listening right now, you're a bad pastor and you should quit. Amen. That's good. Uh, and, but th that's not ministry is very difficult. It's you're dealing with other people's you're with people at their high highs and their low lows. And you're, and you're also you, the knowledge of sin that you carry around in your head that people have been engaged in. What is some of the, the evil that you find out about and that you have to deal with and the complexities of it. I'd read it enough of the biographies of reformers and of the early church fathers to have this like ministry is hard. Maybe I should just get my PhD in history and be a history professor, you know, and I'll just be a blessing to the church. So that was kind of a struggle all the way to the mid uh, 2000s. But frankly, what did it for me is I was just sick of seeing uh, I was blessed by the Calvary Chapel movement. Calvary okay. Chapel's a great starter church because they just, they go through the Bible. And even mm -hmm. if you're Arminian or have some weak theology, if you're just reading the scripture and doing your best to explain it line by line, mm -hmm. it's powerful stuff and God will work through it. Well, I was sick of seeing people not exposit the scripture. And I was sick of also not, or seeing churches that for lack of a better word were just, uh, effeminate and kind of gay and I couldn't bring my friends to it. Mm -hmm. And um, like, I'm always running, always running in interference um, to try to explain like, look, here's what's going on. That's why he talks that way, you know? And, and then, and then on top of that, I was amazed at how uh, so many Christians don't work evangelism into their everyday life. Now I 
again, I'm not against street preaching, but I think street preaching is easy. I don't think it's hard at all. Talking to people that you never see again boldly on a Friday night, big whoop. Now, talking to your coworkers, talking to your neighbors, talking to people that can hear you and your wife scream through the walls sometimes, talking to people that know your stuff, um, the folks that God has providentially put around you, that's very difficult. And, and it was blowing my mind to see how there is no form of evangelism of sharing the gospel present in people's life in that they thought the sharing of the gospel or preaching, whatever you want to say, or just being salt and light generating uh, conversations, how that was abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's abnormal, man. I think it's, I think you're abnormal. I think uh, the abnormal has become normal. That's the issue. Yeah. So I wanted a church that was going to go through the Bible. That was going to um, not just reach women, but also men. And that had a strong missional is what we use. That was the hip word back then. Yeah. Um, and now it's missionals come to mean compromising. But what we meant by then is that a life that's oriented towards uh, being on mission with God, preaching his gospel, being salt and light, always giving an answer for the hope that's inside you. Right. And so I was telling my friend, my frustration, he had just gone back from Seattle. He was like, Oh, you got to meet this guy I'm in Seattle. His name's Mark. Uh, and that's how I found out about Mark Driscoll and how I ended up in Acts 29. And so really um, when I was, the first time I was planning a church, when I finally settled on, this is going to be a part of my life, it was out of frustration with the state of the church. So I think mm -hmm. my call has more to do with um, wanting people to know the biblical Christianity that yeah. I know and know the God that I know and, 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 and being doing that service, which is, and that's kind of where we're at now. I'll be honest, like a year ago, I wasn't sure I was going to church plant. I mm -hmm. was like heavily debating it. And I'm like, man, I can just write and I could just speak and I can make way more money if I'm not having these distractions and right. it's hard on my kids. But then the, the, the state of the church is kind of hard to be critical of it and not really you're an ordained man. You've been to seminary, you've been trained, you've got all this experience. You could go start a church and help combat the um, so it's like either I kind of felt like I, I'd had to shut up about what's going on in the church mm -hmm. or, or actually contribute more than just being a talking head and a personality and a critic. And uh, that was what pushed me back to the ministry. And then COVID really did it when okay. you just saw uh, COVID and black lives matter, where yeah. it, it showed us that the sort of gospel coalition ish like churches uh, that were these kind of moderates or faux conservatives had a deep rot of compromise in them. Yeah, and it absolutely. was like overnight it, it revealed like the status impulses that were in uh, a lot of folks. And then, and it also caused people to come out. Like I think Kevin DeYoung was being swallowed up into mm -hmm. the gospel coalition, but the, he got to the edge of the abyss and it was like, no, I don't think so. So you can see a guy like Kevin DeYoung, who's actually pulling back mm -hmm. and he came yeah. out and wrote those articles on the more or less the glory of the natural family, yeah. uh, which is very anti-gospel coalition, which are like, Oh, everyone should be single, 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 single. That's all everyone's talking about. <laughs> That's weird. And, and then he's pulling back. So I think we're in this, uh, uh, the threshing of the church right now. And, yeah. and I was one of those guys that was like, there, are, there are Christians right now. Like pastors know this faithful churches that are meeting every Sunday and preaching the word of God and not capitulating to the culture are seeing growth. Yeah. Agreed. And it's because folks have nowhere to go. And so how can you say you love Jesus and look out and see sheep without a shepherd and say, you know what? I might not be the world's greatest pastor and I might not be the world's greatest expositor, but if I meet every Sunday and we gather and we, we do the prayers, we do the fellowship, and we do uh, the, the devotion to God's word. And I do my best to exposit it line by line. God will work through, those, uh, work through that in the lives of those people. How can you know that and do nothing? Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't bring myself to do it. So, um, so it's a good place to be where I don't really need this church. This isn't about my personality. Um, anymore like actually i could there's a lot of other things that would be so much easier to do in terms of um, money and time but you know what my my kids need a church mm -hmm. my kids need a faithful church and so this is about uh planting a anti-fragile inner you know generational simple biblical church yeah that will minister to the the sheep that have been dispersed and, and also to my children who I don't want growing up with weak teaching and gay Jesus is my boyfriend music. Yeah.
Fantastic. I mean, it's noble work. I'm glad that you've seen the need and are stepping up into it and praise the Lord. And I think you're hitting the nail on the head. 2020 has exposed. And I think there is a great pruning going on. It's exposed churches. It's exposed pastors. And I think there's a lot of normal parishioners around the country who are kind of looking around and are going to be holding their pastors accountable because it's the pastors as much or more than basic evangelical pew-sitting, faithful Christian. It's pastors who are getting sucked into the Black Lives Matter stuff, all the woke nonsense kind of stuff, just everything that you could put in with that big lump of wokeness from uh, police brutality to feminism to soft complementarianism. The whole thing can be put in there. And pastors are getting swept away like crazy. And we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, part of the Sojourn Network. And um, we're we're not in good conscience going to be able to continue to move forward unless some Massive changes happen. We're just in waiting mode right now. But um, 2020 has been a great year to expose a lot of the cracks that are that are there, both with pastors and churches and denominations. And uh, I'm glad that you're stepping up and meeting the need that's there. And uh, I think I think we're going to look back on 2020 and see a lot of positive things that God has done. This year, my son became a Christian. Got to baptize my boy. Very excited about that. And there's been, I mean, we've we've had 10 to 12 people meet Christ this year, something like that. I've lost track of the number within our congregation and within the families of our churches, our families, the people in our church. It's just a, a neat time. But uh, but you've got all this stuff going on then that you've seen in 2020, but then back up several years, you don't, you see an effeminate church, you see pastors and churches, you see this gay music that's being played and uh, that kind of stuff. And you've been speaking to men and you've been, um, Start, you started It's Good to Be a Man. So why don't you just, just tell us about that? What is it's, it's Good to Be a Man? How did that start? Why did it start? And why is it important? So, I, I mean, sexuality as a topic. So as a pastor, you are, have, you're a general pract- practitioner. Mm-hmm. You, you, you speak to everything. You have to declare the entire counsel of God's word to be a faithful minister. You're not really allowed a hobby horse to, uh, to be in your sermon a week after week after week you know um but we all do tend to have uh areas that we specialize in that we speak to and and generally uh if we're doing a good job it's something that's um very important to the the current battle like every age has its battle Mm -hmm. and uh, we've seen the like deity of christ in the early church and then the Trinitarian nature of God. And then, uh, then it took a long time, but working out the distinction between the visible and invisible church and all that stuff starts developing. And then we get to the reformation, which, uh, was really about justification by faith, but also reclaiming the family because of what had happened with the, the, the Roman Catholic view of celibacy and all that stuff had, had really wrecked family. Mm-hmm. And then like even the doctrine of vocation comes out. And so th- these different areas are ironed out over time. And then you get to full on confessionalism as you get into the 1600s, 1700s. And now what we're facing is a need to be uh, more intentional in our doctrine of anthropology, what it means to be man, what it means uh, to be a woman, um, and not just in terms of sexuality, but obviously when you look at critical race theory, critical race theory just stole all its ideas from 1800s uh, feminist movements. Mm-hmm. And so critical race theory, like really when you get right down to it, it's the anthrop- anthropological error of feminism uh, is that where this all comes from comes from and it's it's been building in the church for centuries uh it really has but it it, it what we're watching is the exponential growth of things so everyone mm-hmm. wants to trace it back to the 50s and certainly with alfred kenzie and uh his his uh, writings on human sexuality that moved into the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and then you have no fall divorce contraceptive in the, at the very end of the 60s and then that gives birth to latchkey kids in the 80s and, and like so it's been building in this tsunami of things and what it's what it's created is a, a unstable society because we've attacked god's design now a lot of us just grew up in this. This is the air we breathe, the water we swim in and and you don't know what you don't know but uh, nature is irrepressible. Uh, God's design can't be frustrated by men. You, you, you can have a time that you live in denial and delude yourself. But f- when you 
so you've got this base desire to marry that all men have mm -hmm. on a woman. You want sex. You want someone to be with. You want a companion. So you know that. So guys get married, but then what really happens is when they have children and in particular sons, they feel like, wait a second, what do I, how do I do this? How am mm -hmm. I a father? And that's because masculinity is something like a baton. So like for a woman, uh, she grows into like, we always say women become, so a woman's got a built-in, uh, a built-in, what do you call it? Uh, well, a, <clears throat> a marker where she enters from girlhood into womanhood in her mm -hmm. period, right? Men right. don't have that. Men used to have to go through these, oh, rites of passage. Mm -hmm. And so, and the rites of passage for a man is like he goes, kills a buffalo or a wolf, or he memorizes all this stuff and recites it or whatever. And then you're a man. You're welcome into the difficulty of the world, man. And so manhood is heavily caught by being around other men. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's the baton that's handed from grandfather to father to son to grandson and so on and so forth. And when you have this little boy in front of you and you look at your hand, you have no baton. Yeah. You don't know what to hand them. And it creates a crisis. And so that happened to me. Where I'm like, okay, I've got this woman, and, and yeah, leading a woman's a little hard, but then when, you, when God adds to your number uh, a, a child, then it really comes home. So for me, I had an interest in sexuality from an academic standpoint when I started studying anthropology and sociology at Northern mm -hmm. Kentucky University. But then also I had an interest in fatherhood uh, when I became a father. And I, I, I was like introduced to books like Reforming Marriage by Doug Wilson, uh, Man and Woman in Christ by Stephen B. Clark, all, all those sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But then fast forward even to about three or four years ago, um, I had been writing on fatherhood and sexuality in general, but I, I got extra disturbed by what I saw happening in the culture, namely that good looking guys or decent men weren't able to get a girl. Like, and, and I would see these girls who uh, were, uh, let's say, humble in appearance mm -hmm. and what they brought to the relationship, and they wouldn't settle for any of these guys. Like, they thought of it as settling. I'm like, what is going on in our culture right now? Mm -hmm. And it was really predominant in the 20-somethings and real early 30-somethings, but mostly, like, the 20-somethings. So, uh, and these guys, they had like, I, I'd give them like my, my dating advice, like, here, do this or do that. And it was just, they're looking at me like I was crazy. And then they were talking to me about how they, how to text with girls. And, you know, look, I, I, my wife and I started dating in 1999. Like there was no texting. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I probably did a email a week or something back then you know um there was no social media when i wanted to call my wife i got in my pickup truck and i was in indiana i drove across the river ohio river to kentucky and put a quarter in the uh, pay phone because a quarter you you could actually call long distance kentucky to ohio and it only cost you a quarter but not indiana nice. at all nice. so i drive over there so these guys are telling me the world and I, i'm realizing wait a second maybe maybe because a lot of the impulse of pastors is to think that they're full of it and mm -hmm. that they're making this stuff up and that right. they're lazy and they don't get it. But then I thought, what, what if there has something has changed? Because I remember that. So I was born on the fracture. So how old are you? I'm, I'm 37, 37. So you're yep. pretty close. You're right on the line. So those that were born like 78 to about 83 or so, or this little microgen that knew analog and digital, right. knew the world before the internet, in the world after the internet, and was able to be conversant in kind of both worlds. Um, and I always tell people, if you want to see what happened in the 90s to the 2000s, just watch like X-Files, mm -hmm. right? Like, like motors running to find like a payphone, And then he's like printing off stuff. He's got to rip the little, the little things off the edge of the paper. And now you just see how quick things change. But um, I noticed that after I left high school, that my friends, little sisters and little brothers were way more sexually promiscuous than anything we, we had. Yeah, there's people that slept around and stuff, but it was like multiple partners and stuff. It started like exploding in a way that was even weird for a little Indiana town. Folks don't know how immoral rural America is. It's yeah, lot, yeah, no doubt. lots of drugs, lots of fornication, but mm -hmm. it was, it was way, so something started to happen. And I thought about that. And so then I just said, let's, 
let's look into this. Let's see what's going on. I discovered Jordan Peterson. I discovered mm -hmm. the Red Pill guys. I discovered uh, how a lot of these young men were turning to YouTube to get real world answers that, that actually worked as opposed to the answer of pastors who um, uh, tend to be uh, treat women like they're angelic and they're good. And, and I don't think a lot of these pastors know that these Christian girls are hooking up with people um, when they, they go away or, or, you know, they're like the things that's happening right now is really disturbing. And so I, I started to learn that all, uh, learn what was actually going on mm -hmm. in the younger generation. And that's, it's good to be a man came out of that. It was just going to be like your standard compliment. Well, patriarchal sort of, um, saying the same things like Doug Wilson says and all that. But then mm -hmm. as I got deeper into that world, it kind of took on a different, um, I, I think we kind of have our own voice and, yeah. uh, and I wasn't trying to do that. I was just trying to be helpful to men. I wanted them to know that it's good to be a man, that God designed you to be a man. You shouldn't be ashamed of your masculinity. Let's find out what does it mean to be a man? And we shouldn't have to study this because it should be, it's a nature. Right. Mm -hmm. Dogs don't at, try to figure out how to be canines. Right. They're dogs. Right. right. Men shouldn't have to do that because when there's a natural system together, the one that God designed, it's just handed down from man to man. Mm -hmm. But what what I think a lot of boomers don't understand is that since masculinity is caught, there's a lot of things that you think are natural mm -hmm. that were actually taught to you by example to your uncle, grandfather and dad. And then as the tsunami of the sexual revolution and fatherless came in, that stuff was never handed down to this generation. So they don't know that they never learned how to look in someone's eyes and stand yeah. up straight and shake. And that's why like a guy like Jordan Peterson comes along and says, make your bed. And these young guys are like, Whoa. <laughs> and you're like, what yeah. do you mean, whoa? And so I think that's, it's the things that, folks assume that you just get actually you caught yeah and if it's not being handed off well then that's why these guys are rushing to you know i i can't tell you everyone listens to my podcast and writes me what uh, give me a reading list right i can give you a reading list um i've got some big ones but uh i'm gonna tell you right now like that's not how this works mm -hmm. and that's because they're like oh, how do i be a man i don't want to screw up can uh, can get me step by step by step i always tell people it's like they want a paint by number plan for manhood and that and manhood at its best is like bob ross right that's like it's like you know well he screwed up we'll make that into a cloud mm -hmm. and um and so this is it's good to be a man came uh, out of wanting to be helpful to these men as a ministry. Um, and, and my goal is for it's good to be a man to disappear. <laughs> if I do a good job, I'll get a lot of other people out there um, doing the same thing and having these conversations and fathers will come out of it. And a ministry like ours will be one that doesn't need to stay around. That doesn't need to write, you know, it's good to be a man's commentary on this. Like, you know, all these guys that become famous pastors, they all write their lame books that we've all read before. Yeah. And now they put their names on it. So our goal is to do a good enough job that there's just a bunch of other people out there doing it and we're not, we're not needed. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the work. And I just actually discovered you guys just a little while ago and I'd been off Twitter for about a year or so. And I just kind of threw my hands up and walked away. And then I jumped back on and I've really enjoyed, you know, your work and, and what you guys are doing. I really appreciate it. And I think you got your finger again on the, on the issues of the day. I think uh, Owen Strand wrote, a book um, last year, and he does a really good job, kind of like the 90s men's ministry stuff of exposing problems. And I think he's rightly identified, though, that the issue of the day is anthropology. I mean, that's the, 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 the issue of this century. And you could go back over the last two centuries and say it's been building exactly what you're saying. But phenomenal stuff, man. And I appreciate your work. You know, it seems like the, the complementarians were trying to answer some questions in the 80s and the 90s and, and a lot of men's ministry where they were speaking to men, shaming men, but terrified of women. And going along with the culture of the day of just just completely terrified of women whatsoever. So it was all women are amazing. Women are amazing. Uh, men, you're terrible. Step up and be responsible kind of thing. One of the things I appreciated and one of the things I've been trying to do, and actually I repented to our women a couple of years ago, is that women have been completely malnourished because the men have been terrified to speak to them. And pastors have been terrified to call them up into what God has actually commissioned and prohibited them from doing. And uh, both commissioned them to and prohibited them from, from doing and pastors have just been terrified. And I think that's a part of that effeminacy of men in the pulpit being terrified. So they just scream at men and never actually talk to women at all other than just praise them. 
So this issue of manhood, I think, is seen in the pulpit and of masculinity is seen in the pulpit. Man, there's so much that we could talk about. I love talking about rites of passages uh, for, for boys and all that you're doing. I think uh, uh, back to the raising of modern day night when I was reading in the 90s and, and early 2000s about rites of passage. I was steeped in 90s men's ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually, I just talked to Steve Farrar, who's one of the better guys. Uh, just talked to Steve Farrar last week. He wrote the book Point, uh, Point Man in 1991. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It's a good book. He's yeah. I, I remember, I think in Point Man, he's got like, he lists those 50, he's got like a list of 50 things of, mm-hmm. you know, he like looks at fatherhood a lot of times through the grid of like a coach, which I think actually would sound bad nowadays, but if you read the book, it's the examples he gives are quite good, actually. Yeah, he's got some good stuff. I had He's got a 30-year anniversary appointment coming out here in a bit. But uh, I'd almost love to do another podcast on 90s men's ministry and what was the, the good things, what was some of the takeaways. Maybe we could talk about that in the future. But specifically, these pastors, the pastors that are listening in, one of the things that I've warned them against is that you look across the spectrum of men that are not finishing well, or that are morally failing, sinfully failing, and disqualifying themselves. It's the area of Christian manhood. It's pastors who know how to expose the scripture. They know how to preach. They even know how to give some counsel, but they don't know how to live as a Christian man. And they don't know how to be a husband. They don't know how to be a father. They fail at basic spiritual disciplines. And so they look at their life, and for the last five years, they've been preparing for sermons, but they have not had any devotional life whatsoever. They've not just simply how to follow God as a Christian man. Why do so many Christian pastors, why do so many pastors struggle with the simplicity of being, and not that it's simple, there's a lot of complexities there, but simply being a Christian man? Why is that such a struggle for pastors? Well, I mean, pastors are um, a byproduct. I call it the bastards, um, using the King James uh, version, that uh, those that don't have the loving discipline of a father are illegitimate, or King James says bastards. And so we have a whole generation of guys that are like fatherless, without the name of their father, without the loving discipline of a godly father. And uh, and we've used that that word. I like that word because it has a sting to it. It's like sodomite has a better there's sometimes you just use the word homosexual, but sometimes you want to use the word sodomite because there's a sting. There used to be a shame to be fatherless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like a cultural societal shame because you, you're missing out on something. So we all are growing up in a culture abdication where even if we do have a father, a lot of times that uh, the father is not discipling their kids. That's why there's this, uh, this great failure of the greatest generation, the boomers people the greatest generation i think was his card right like mm-hmm. they went i mean they seriously went through some intense things yeah. and um and that that explains how the the real me generation of the boomers came and and how that translated to their children and and everyone doesn't want to make it about generations but give me a break it's about gener- like there's sins that are present uh like well, our our i'm not i'm gonna have to repent to my kids for things right we all are mm-hmm. but um so these guys grew up in that as well. Then they also go to the academy and the academy it tends to be pretty effeminate um, because uh, a lot of these guys, they can't make it in the real world. They can't make it as real pastors. And so they go and they become professors and we all praise them. And you're like, yeah, you, but you just read books and research and write. I know that's hard, but um, hey, this guy, this guy's wife cheated on him and then he out of revenge cheated on her. Mm -hmm. And now what do we do with this? Like, tell me, you know, tell me writer of books, how do I deal with this in my church? Um, So the Academy, there's a sort of weakness in the Academy and Christians, you know, they get their MDiv, whatever, are going to the Academy and coming out like gutless, especially because the Academy, the Christian Academy teaches them that conflict in your church is like failure. But you, a pastor, a good pastor is a hot compress, right? Where you take like that hot rag and you're trying to bring mm. the infection to the surface. Yeah. Uh, if you're a good pastor, you are surfacing conflict, you know? So this isn't, these are things that are already under the surface, the controversy, the problems in the family. Cause a lot of pastoral work is simply a familial conflict resolution mm-hmm. is really what you're doing. Um, which makes sense if you, if you, carry that idea as you look at the pastoral epistles you'll see things haven't changed um but uh so these guys are being taught conflict is bad um they're going through a they're being led by men who appear to be masculine or whatever but really you know you stick them in the world of business or, or you stick them in a real church and they're gonna 
flounder most of them and then they grew up with it, the same broken sort of stuff and then also the pasture attracts a lot of like kind of wheat wheat barney fives where else can you become can you become a leader of men and be so unmanly yeah, <laughs> i mean right. not in the business world not very long because there's metrics you're held to like you have to perform and and so i think what's going on with a lot of these guys is that a lot of them probably shouldn't become pastors, but now they are. And so you're in this, so maybe you should quit. Maybe you mm -hmm. should quit. If you're listening to this, like everyone's told you, you can't quit, but I'll tell you, you can quit. I've done it before. It was good. Um, and, but some of them also uh, have an inclination that something's wrong and they should, they should act on it. Like mm -hmm. you, like you should, your wife should not be bossing you around. Right. She should be a helpmate to you. And, and so I think it's just hard for all of us right now. We're in a culture that is uh, in deep rebellion, uh, raging against God's design. And yeah. pastors aren't outside of that. And so the first place to get free from it is to recognize that, again, it is the air we breathe, the, the water we swim, and we've absorbed a lot of this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you got to start questioning these things and, and working through them. And that's why books are helpful. Books can get you started down that path. Or um, some of we, you know, we talked about some of our mutual acquaintances, Bill Smith, Eric Kahn, having these other guys out there to talk these issues through um, will help men. But it's just hard to be a pastor. Also, like churches are like 60 to 70% female. Mm -hmm. You know, and and you're going to tend to cater to your your audience. Yeah. You just are. Everyone is. That's really hard not to. And that's why, the you know, it's kind of a trope. But that's why the Mother's Day sermons are like, hey, women are awesome. And the Father's Day sermons are like, hey, buddy, you screw up, you know. <laughs> and right. um, and that's because they are uh, catering to the, the crowd. Because, you know, you know, when you get up there and you're about to teach something. You're like, if I say this, this means weeks of meetings and phone mm -hmm. calls and long emails um, on so many subjects when you're yeah. a pastor. And so it's actually, you have to be willing to do the work and not be lazy. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so upsetting women who can be quite verbose and, and pretty uh, strategic <laughs> like women are pretty strategic in yeah. how they come at things uh it's hard so i think that everything about it right now that's one reason i'm i'm really in favor of bivocational ministry i don't think it's the only way i don't think it's scripture mandates it but i do think it, it is quite common throughout history if someone tells me they don't like what i say and they're not going to tithe i'll say all right you yeah. know <laughs> we'll be all right. We don't, God doesn't need your money. And you can say that as a pastor, you can, but your wife and your kids depend on you. And at the end of the day, you have a responsibility to manage your household well, and that takes uh, revenue of some form. Yeah. And so I think there's like the, the vocational ministry is, is cornering these guys where if they take a strong stand, they might lose everything. Where else can you preach one bad sermon? Like usually you've got a verbal warning, a written warning, another, and then you get fired in corporate America. Yeah. But in churches, you make the wrong elder's wife mad. And let's be honest, it's oft, often the elder's wives are like the source of all problems. Yeah. And um, that's why I always tell people when I'm thinking about putting someone into the ministry, I just want to interview uh, his wife and his kids. I don't really mm -hmm. care about him. I'll tell you who he is. Mm -hmm. And the question I always okay. ask, my favorite question asked, and they always hate this one. I always say, so, uh, what was the last fight you got in? What was it over? And who won? That's my leading question. <laughs> I want to know. It's good. Tell I need me. to write that down and put that in a PDF so I can hand that out and remember that. Oh, yeah. You find out a whole lot. No, I don't know that we've ever been in a fight. All right. So you guys are 100% on the same page. Like, I, I, if you haven't been in a fight, I don't want you to be – I don't want you to be an elder, Mike. Like <laughs> I, I don't. Conflict. I, I don't. That's like either you're a worthless helpmate or you're a cowardly husband. Something's not right here. Um, yeah. But uh, but these are th th we have to change how we're doing things. I think we're going to have to go back to older model of training pastors. The academy is a poison right now. Um, you know, just think of what seminary are you confident that you could send men to 
without it corrupting them. It's a very, very small list, yeah, right? At right. best. Absolutely. And, and then we're going to have to change the nature of vocational ministry, or at least where pastors have a side hustle that have some other funds coming into their homes so they're not as limited. Um, because, you know, the thing is with those of us that love the church, um, we will – I was reading about Martin Luther – I just finished a book, Popes and Fem- Feminists. Really yeah, my, our, our ladies at our church just started that. My wife just started yeah, that a couple of days ago. Fantastic book. Anyway, uh, in it, she talks about how um, uh, Catherine, Katie, uh, Martin Luther's wife, one of the big things that she did to help him was he would just give everything away and he wouldn't take money for anything. And, she, and he was basically just never had enough money. Mm-hmm. And that's how a lot of us guys are. We're, we're willing to do all this free. Right. Like we don't really need money to be a pastor. We're, we're going to do it. But that that's kind of a problem because we have a household that we're responsible. Yeah. And we and you clone yourself, you reproduce yourself and your people. Yeah. And and so a lot of men aren't qualified to be pastors because their their households whack. Yeah. And everyone's like they just think about their children. Right. Like whether their ki- children basically obey, but their finances are all out of um, are all jacked up. And you look at the principles of Proverbs that everyone wants to spiritualize, right? They always like, like, well, it's not about leaving them a real inheritance. No, it oh, is. Yeah. That is clearly what it's saying. Now, obviously, if you have to choose between a financial heritage and a godly spiritual heritage, yes, of course, pick the spiritual heritage. Yeah. But God makes rich the, dil- uh, the hands of the diligent. That means you will have uh, what you need for your grandkids to some degree to help them to get them ahead. But a lot of pastors are bogged down with seminary debt and their credit scores are like under 600. And um, they're, they're using credit cards to get their uh, groceries at the end of the month, floating it till they get to the next thing. And, uh, and, and that's the situation they're in. And they're supposed to be bold in the pulpit. Yeah. Terrible. (laughs) It's it's a, and then they're stuck in this. They're stuck Mm -hmm. in this because then they've done 10 years of ministry. You got a stupid degree. Right, you got like a bachelor's in Bible, and then you got an MDiv, which makes you basically incompetent to do almost anything. It's like yeah. not quite a true theology degree, but almost all the practical stuff they teach you in your MDiv class isn't how it works at all. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's a mixture. So then, then you've been doing ministry for ten years. How are you going to get out? How are you going to pivot to a real, real career? And you know, where are you going to go? So that that you get a lot of men in the ministry that are just stuck and they, they just don't want to be there. They do feel like they're compromising, have a bad conscience. So we, there's a lot we have to work to change. And um, I know that sounds, that sounds, I'm kind of a little dystopian there, but, uh, but it it is, these are the realities that these are what men are facing right now and men in the pulpit. And, and so like whatever you can get rid of, like if you can, get rid of the debt, if you can use YNAB, if you can get a side hustle, if you, um, uh, if you can just really, I think a lot of pastors also would do a lot better if they would just start lifting weights, um, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. They would have a little confidence because they're, you know, some big blubbery walrus looking dude up there talking to you about self-discipline. It's kind of a hard sell. Yeah. Um, well, that's a lot of good stuff. A lot of things to think through. And I mean, I, I think, a lot of millennial younger pastors are doomed to repeat some of the exact same things they were frustrated about with boomer pastors. And I think they're going to repeat some of those same mistakes because financially they're going to be in the exact same situation that so many of these boomer pastors have been in. And if you don't buy a house by the time you're 35, how are you going to retire? If you don't have equity, if you don't own a home, uh, how are you going to, you're going to push away young leaders. And I think one of the big reasons that guys like us have planted churches and there's been such a really big, church planning push over the last 25 years is because boomer pastors saw all these young leaders as a threat and not every boomer, but this is my livelihood. This guy can preach. He can lead. He's a youth pastor and people like him better than they like me. What am I going to do? And so they stiff arm, they stiffed arm. And so, so many guys our age have had similar experiences with pastors who would not mentor them or did the exact opposite, harm them, hurt them and uh, push them away. And so we all planted churches. Here's the next big, church planning wave. About 30 years from now, when guys like us are about to retire all across this country who aren't ready, and they're about to leave their wives like Luther did, destitute, um, I got to hold on and I'm going to push young leaders away. There's going to be all these young guys all around, and God's raising up 
and they're going to plant a bunch of churches. So one of the things I'm trying to do is sound the alarm for guys, for pastors right now. Hey, simple things. Buy a house before you're 35. Buy a house at 30. Be able to have a house paid off by the time you're at formal retirement age so you have a place to live. The, you know, some of the things you're talking about, building an anti-fragile pastoring, I think there's a handful of feminists that are controlling pulpits all over the country. And even complementarian, good, confessional, reform pastors are absolutely terrified of them. Absolutely terrified. And so there's so much that we could talk about. I appreciate your time. I really do. Uh, one last question, and then I'll give you an opportunity to, to send people your way to, to say, here's where, where you can find more of my stuff and the stuff we're doing. I ask everybody this at the end because I want people to hear it, and I want you an opportunity to speak to this. Uh, I'm going to set you up to praise God for his grace. Uh, Michael Foster, you're a Christian man. means you've been redeemed by Jesus. Why do you love Jesus so much? Yeah, I was blind, and now I see. I was lost. Now I'm found. Uh, I was without an inheritance, and now I have an inheritance in this life and the life to come. Um, I, when I, I work, I work out of grace, out of the acceptance of God. God isn't some angry Zeus using me like some little chess piece screwing with me, messing with me. Uh, he's a father that's for me. Think of numbers that his face shines upon me. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He, he makes all this. He gives me everything. I have an abundant life. I have abundant opportunities. And uh, all I know is abundance, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and uh, all that by, by grace, I, I haven't, I don't deserve any of this. And everything I have is, is by the hand of God and, and that by grace. So I love Jesus because he's my elder brother and through him, I have an inheritance. I love him because he's my savior and through him, I have salvation and access to the father. Um, I love him because he's my shepherd and he guides me through this, this uh, difficult world. Even uh, when the, you know, green pastures turn to dark valleys, you know, we could go on and on and on. I, I love him um, because he knows all my sins, he knows my reality in a way that no one else does. And yet he still sympathizes with me and loves me and brings me into his fold. Amen. Praise God. That's <laughs> so good. All right. Well, if people have enjoyed listening to this, where can they find out more about you and what you, what you got going on? Yeah. So I'm most active on Twitter at this is foster is my, my handle. Um, you can go to it's good to be a man.com which is our website that we every once in a while update. Um, we also have a podcast that you can find on iTunes and Stitcher and some other places, Spotify, I think, uh, called It's Good to Be Man as well. And uh, we get to that usually whenever we feel like it. But uh, right now, we're, we've actually been weekly. So we'll see how long that keeps up. But you can see a lot of our stuff there that's on, on masculinity. And if you're on the east side of Cincinnati, you can come to our church. Awesome. Which we, we don't have a website yet. So you'll just have to really want to find it. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I've been talking to Michael Foster. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit theshepherdscrook.co. For care and counsel, please call, text, or email to set up a session. You can follow The Shepherd's Crook on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And please consider sharing this episode and leaving a review on iTunes or whatever other podcast platform you use. And let me encourage you to remember Jesus Christ.